Paula Pinho is the Director of Just Transition at the European Commission Director General for Energy. She was responsible for the energy strategy and policy coordination, the renewables and energy system integration policy, and the decarbonization and sustainability of energy sources. Pinho is also the Acting Director for Energy Policy, where she has overseen the work of international energy relations, financial instruments, and interinstitutional relations. As a member of the cabinet, she has been involved in the trilateral gas talks between the EU, Russia, and Ukraine. While head of units responsible for energy strategy and policy coordination, Pinyu has coordinated the preparation and adoption of the Clean Energy for All Europeans package. Pinyu speaks Portuguese, German, English, French, Spanish, and Italian fluently. Welcome, Director Pinho, to One Planet and Future Cities podcast. Thank you. Good afternoon. Pleasure to be with you. So tell us about your journey. When did your interest in politics and the environment begin and what led you to focus on energy? Thank you, Mia. Well, it was back when I was in high school. And I was really interested back then already in the European Union and the project of the EU integration. I found it fascinating to have people across uh, Europe working for a common project, for a project of peace, for a project of democracy, of shared values, of sharing projects and overcoming all the obstacles which sometimes separate us, overcoming borders, sharing resources, sharing ideas. So I was very fascinated by this idea. And that actually uh, also led me to choose the subject of my university education, which was law. But I really chose law, not as an end, as I usually say, but as a means, because I thought it was the best way to then really allow me to, to have the possibility to work for the EU institution. And so I, I accomplished a dream when I was accepted to work here. And then the path within the, the European Commission was pretty much unplanned, I have to say. It was, it was I, I walked uh, the path uh, and was surprised. And actually, the way I started in energy was when the European Commissioner for Energy, Mr. Oettinger, invited me to join the team. I was before that working with another commissioner and before that I had been working in DG Trade. But when I received the invitation to work on energy, I just thought this is a really an amazing subject to work on. And I started working on energy now for almost 12 years and haven't had one single day of boredom, I have to say. I mean, even events of today, it's right at the center of everything that we do. Tell us about your experiences working with cabinets, really through critical years of the economic crisis, the rise of populism. It's highly technical and it has to engage, as you say, every sector of the community. I said I worked in different areas, also, for instance, on trade, where I was working on the negotiations of a free trade agreement with the Gulf cooperation countries and really there also with partner countries who have a different approach in many ways to many of also our values. But it was very interesting to get to know these cultures. And then on energy, I was responsible back then at the cabinet already for energy security at a crucial time in all the way heading to 2014, where we were again with a threat that gas supplies would be disrupted from Russia over Ukraine, where we would have been the victims of a side effect of back then already 
some confrontation between Ukraine and Russia. And today it feels like take two of this episode, except that back then it was really limited to energy. And today it became what it is, which is really a human, a human tragedy, much, much, much beyond energy. But uh, uh, in 2013, in 2014, I was involved in the negotiations to reach a trilateral agreement between Russia, Ukraine and the EU so as to ensure supplies of gas through Ukraine. Because as you know, the biggest supplier of gas of the EU and also of oil is Ukraine. And we were keen on having these two countries, the supplier and also Ukraine as a transit country to working together and worried about energy security of the EU, but also worried about energy security of Ukraine. And that was, of course, also after the financial crisis, which hit us all and where I was also already working with the cabinets and where you see the challenge of finding solutions beyond national borders, because these were challenges, be it the financial crisis, be it now with COVID, be it back then also the energy security threat. These are all challenges that we've been facing in the EU, but some of them also globally, which can really not have a proper response only at national level and where it is of crucial importance that we put our forces together and that we find common solutions. This is sometimes the most challenging aspect because it's much easier to find national solutions than reaching compromises between back then 28 member states, today 27. It's, of course, not always easy. It requires compromise. It requires mutual understanding. It requires giving up sometimes on what individual countries may find the best uh, in their national interest for the sake of the common uh, interest. But this is also what is fascinating about uh, the EU is this, this uh, constant search for common solutions which go well beyond the national interest. And we've had almost too many of those challenges in the past uh, years. And now today, again, we are faced with that same challenge of having to find a common solution and a common unity to uh, challenges which are much more than just national. Well, all the more amazing that the EU and European Commission is really leading the way in terms of sustainability, that when you have to bring together so many uh, countries, you've sort of answered part of our student from um, Spain's question, but here I'll play you the rest. You were involved in the trilateral gas talks between the EU, Russia and Ukraine. Given Russia's recent invasion of Ukraine, I would be very interested in understanding what impact you think this will have on the European Union's energy policy and energy security. Hmm. Thank you very much for, for that very important question. And you know, it's been years that the EU, the European Commission, together with the member states, the European Parliament, that we've been working on diversifying our sources of energy. This has been a key objective for many, many years. And in terms of energy security, today we are in a much better position than we were when we faced the first 
energy security crisis in 2006 and then 2009 and then the threat of such a crisis in 2014 because we understood that we had to really build interconnections for instance between the various member states that we would make sure that uh, the commodities the energy commodities are there where they are needed because very often it was a question of of having the hardware in place, the, the motorways of energy, right? The, the interconnections for electricity, for gas. So we've been working on that further integration of the EU over many, many years. And of course, then also with another objective in sight, which was the decarbonization, the gradual decarbonization, and now looking at the vision of Europe as the first climate neutral continent in the world. And we have put forward extremely ambitious proposals in that sense, started already uh, some years ago, and then with a new impetus with the Green Deal, which is really about decarbonizing the, the energy system. And today, in face of this tragedy that we are witnessing, we realize that the Green Deal and what we uh, are aiming at is not just about decarbonization. And this is really one of the big challenges that our society is facing today is climate change. And the Green Deal is about tackling that societal uh, challenge, which is climate change. But it is more than that. For the EU, it is also about energy security and about diversification. And if it is was not clear to everyone. I think today and within one week, we've seen even um, those who may have been, let's say, more reserved about some of the ambition of the Green Deal, now realize that it's absolutely urgent to diversify more than, even more than we had done over the past years, and to uh, radically reduce our dependence on fossil fuels. And of course, within that dependence to reduce uh, our dependence on our main supplier, we really need to bring that dependence uh, down and, and replace it by renewables, uh, energy, make the most of energy efficiency, make the most of sustainability and circularity. So the Green Deal is, in my view, further boosted with this horrible tragedy, which reminds us of many values that uh, we pursue, but which we are not always aware of, uh, as said, peace, democracy, but also now the, the need for a sustainable uh, economy and a, a decarbonized uh, energy system. Yes. And, you know, we're living in the century of the city and we're living in a decade of, as you say, uh, transformation as cities are the main drivers of creativity and innovation, but also consume 75% of the world's natural resources and 70% of global carbon dioxide emissions come from cities. So what do you think the cities of the future are going to look like in terms of energy, as well as transport, resource and waste management, food pollution? Thank you. This is a very important question, you know, because cities are really the living labs of everything that we're doing in terms of energy policy, right? And it's extremely important that whatever we are putting forward in terms of policy, in terms of legislation, is embraced by the citizens in cities 
in the local level, um, the best policies will not serve any purpose if they're not really taken up by citizens. And so we've been working a lot hand in hand with cities. We, you may have heard of uh, the Covenant of Mayors, which brings together cities initially across the EU, but thanks to its big success, today is bringing together cities across the world, the global covenant of mayors. And it is really exciting to see how many cities through their mayors, through their local populations are adhering to the decarbonization goals. And you see, despite the differences, right, because we're talking about cities across the whole world, and despite the differences, a shared objective of decarbonization, decarbonizing the public transport, decarbonizing the way uh, we consume energy, but also the way we produce energy with solar panels, for instance, being rolled out with uh, the support of the policy, sometimes with the support of the funding. So really crucial to work with um, the cities to see how it plays out, everything that is being proposed. How does it play out in the various uh, cities? We also have what is uh, we call the city's mission, which again builds on the initiatives of, of, of cities in view of decarbonization. And sometimes it's really interesting to see how individual cities are more ambitious than their national governments and are really pushing ahead and are giving the example. And for us, this is absolutely crucial because these cities are showing it is possible to implement these policies, these targets on renewables, on energy efficiency, on climate. And they're showing it is possible to implement. They're showing the difference. They're showing the difference in terms of air quality, in terms of living quality of their citizens. So it's an impressive partnership and one that I really would not like to, to give up. Yes, and we've always believed that regulation should come from government, but also from industry. You know, how important are public-private partnerships to help us reach net zero and become energy efficient? You know, I'm excited to see these great partnerships in Germany and around the world, and how can they be role models for other countries? Yeah. Mm. You know, we're talking about more than just decarbonizing, right? Behind, behind this, this simple word, decarbonization of uh, society, it's really, we're talking about a societal transformation, right? And therefore, everybody is concerned, be it as a citizen, be it as an entrepreneur, be it as a company, be it as a public authority, be it as a researcher, and the role of research and innovation, be it as a student, mind you, and really have a lot of trust in the students and in their strength to bring forward these big, big changes, this, this societal changes. So I'd say that you cannot, it cannot happen if you don't have very solid partnerships across the board and clearly also with industry. And you're seeing 
really pledges from companies who would you expect less? I mean, in the energy field, when you look at uh, companies, big and well-known companies, which started with their main business being, for instance, oil and gas and how they are transforming their portfolio and how they are transforming into also uh, active actors in the gradual decarbonization of the energy system. It is promising and it shows that really not only we need everyone on board, but that it is also possible. And we like to believe in prosumer solutions and we like to be supportive as we can. What are some exciting projects happening within industry? Oh, there's so much going on. And, uh, you know, when I'm asked, is there a silver bullet in terms of research and innovation? Really, there isn't. There was a very interesting report from the International Energy Agency last year, which indicated that in order to reach climate neutrality, really most of the innovation required are not even deployed yet. So there's a huge potential still for research, for for innovation and tapped potential, which will need to be seized. And again, across the board. If we talk, for instance, of renewables, and if we really want to roll out, if we want to to have much more electrification of the energy system, and we will need renewables for that. But in order to really seize the potential of uh, wind energy, of solar energy, we will need also storage. And the big breakthrough in storage has not yet happened. So that will be, for instance, a key breakthrough once we get there so that we can really make the most and that we no longer have the challenge of the so-called intermittency of the renewable energy, which is we are dependent on when uh, the sun is shining, when the wind is blowing. So we need to figure out how to store renewable energy. So that is absolutely key. But then in the various sectors, you have so much uh, going on from the greening of the production of steel and cement, for instance, which will be key in decarbonizing and bringing down the footprint, uh, the carbon footprint of these very energy intense uh, industries. So we need the research, we need the researchers, we need the universities as the enabler also of our transition. But we're not all scientists. We're not all politicians. I was having a conversation the other day with former Ecuadorian minister and former president of the World Wildlife Fund, Yolanda Kakabatsi, and she was saying that even she, who has been decades, and she even finds just through the scientific jargon, she doesn't understand a lot of the papers delivered. And so that's a difficulty is communicating it with the general public so that they can get behind it and perhaps apply their natural skills and aptitudes. So what are some of those programs that we can all get involved in. Mm -hmm. Yes, and you're raising really a very important aspect, which is how do we communicate with the citizens about the policies? How do we raise awareness? Of course, a lot is through education, eh? early at school. Personally, I think we're um, still far from an ideal uh, school program. We should introduce new disciplines in terms of sustainability early on. I mean, I'm always impressed, I have to say, nonetheless, by by the awareness that young people and even uh, children, I speak for my own children, who are sometimes more 
conscious uh, and environmentally friendly than their parents and, and draw our attention to how to go about energy consumption efficiently and, and not to buy fruits and plastics. So I think, of course, today there's much more awareness than there was in my generation, in the generation of my parents. But yet I think we could do much more from much earlier on in a structured manner to raise awareness, uh, bring it in in the school programs, how important it is to really care for the planet and how it can be done for by every single one of us in the way we consume not just energy but in the way we do our choices uh, of what we buy in the supermarket or in the little like, grocery shops and how to go about it there there's much more that can be done already at that level. There are then also projects by the European Commission supporting uh, this, and I mentioned through, for instance, Horizon uh, Europe, which is the big research and innovation program, which really has different areas, different focus, but also it's also about in the involvement of citizens, awareness raising, communication about research and innovation and how can that be used on a daily basis. And I love to see more interdisciplinary discussions because sometimes people just focus on their specialty, whether it's water or energy or pollution and not enough discussion because they're all interrelated. I know that there's a lot of intelligence skills among farmers or mechanics or the average person who can help implement nature-based solutions. Tell us a bit more about the cross-national complexity. The EU, it's vast, and yet in many ways the EU is leading the way in terms of the 1.5 targets. Tell us about some of those cross-national cooperations taking place and what do we still need to do to meet our targets? Well, you know, again here, what is challenging is that, of course, if you look at the 27 European Union member states, they are at very different points in the journey of decarbonization, right? You have, for instance, Poland, which still relies on about more than 60% of coal in its electricity production, compared to Sweden, where that share goes actually, comes actually from renewables in electricity production. So you see where we're starting from very different starting points, whereas the end point, the end destination is the same. So of course, the challenge here is how to cater for the national specificities and, and bear them in mind in the transition. And this is absolutely key because um, our final destination is very clear. We're aiming at a climate neutral continent by 2050. But to get there, and what we call the transition, this will bring different challenges to different uh, citizens and also depending on where they are in each in, in which country. So we cannot underestimate the, the role of the transition. And that's why we've been really putting a lot of emphasis also in ensuring a just transition, meaning that some citizens will at first and in the, in, the, in the short term maybe be negatively impacted by decarbonization, right? Think of the, all those working in, in coal mines, for instance, if we are aiming to, to phasing out coal, of course, what do we do with, with those working in coal mines? So you need to ensure re-education, new skills, training, 
And this is absolutely key in order to make sure that really everybody can benefit from this transition, which is absolutely key and that we cannot give up on, uh, but you will need to tackle different uh, needs at different points uh, in time. So for us in the commission, that's also the role is really to bear in mind uh, the different national specificities and then find the best ways to tackle those and to facilitate uh, the transition with the potential of each one and seizing the best that each has to, to offer. Is this really at the core of what you do at Just Transition to make sure mm -hmm. no one's left behind? Exactly. This is one of the responsibilities and the, of my teams. And it's, it really is interesting because in this directorate, we bring together on the one hand, the just transition, the decarbonization through energy efficiency, through energy efficient products. But it's also, it also brings in energy security, as we were mentioning before, and innovation. And really, these are all contributing in a way. Of course, as I said, innovation will uh, ensure the decarbonization, but then on the way, we need to make sure that we really ensure just uh, a transition, that we are really keen on looking at the impacts on everyone, on tackling energy poverty, for instance. Again, very important against the current context of high energy prices, for instance, where we're seeing that many families are struggling right, because of the rise in energy prices. And so how can we, together with the national governments, uh, see, identify what are the best means to help people in such conditions to, to really, at the end of the month, man manage to, to pay their energy uh, bills? Yes, and I know you've done work or you're doing work about, you know, making our houses more efficient then. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly, indeed. And, you know, there's many sustainable development goals. Uh, which are the most important for you and which do you feel we're coming closest to achieving? Mm. I think there's still a lot to be done. I think on all of the sustainable development goals, of course, I'm suspicious if I say that the one on affordable and clean energy is, is a key uh, one. But to be honest, I think quality education, and it brings us back to the, to the issue I mentioned earlier, quality education is really the basis. I would call it really the foundation for practically all the other sustainable development goals. If you ensure quality education, all the rest will be easier, all the other goals. And then, of course, against the background, of one sustainable development goal that we have unfortunately overseen because we have taken it for granted over the past decades, which is really peace and justice, right? In Europe, we've been spoiled in a way with taking apart the situation in, in, in Yugoslavia, but otherwise for 16 years, we've been spared. This is in a way unprecedented in the history. It's now two generations, my generation, the generation of my children who have been living without seeing uh, a war in Europe. And I think we've all taken that for granted. And now, for a, a week now, and since the invasion of Ukraine, we are being reminded that this is not to be taken for granted and that we need to continue to nurture uh, peace, to nurture the democratic values actively, that it's not there 
and um, accomplished and we can just take it for granted. It needs to be nurtured by all on a daily basis. And so projecting ahead, uh, what would you like to see for Europe in five, 10 years? Where do you think the EU will be? And what would you like to achieve as your main priorities? We're working very hard on really making sure that we have a cleaner Europe and more sustainable Europe. I'd also like to see uh, a more integrated European Union. And Ukraine is one who has been really ready to sacrifice a lot to adhere to, to the EU. I'd love to see this, this dream of so many uh, people and so many young people, the countries neighboring the EU, become a reality. And I think with a lot of work, it is possible. And we should continue to work in this uh, sense, no matter in which, in which sector we're working. So energy, for sure, there's a lot still to be done until we get to a climate neutral Europe, but on the way is really also strengthening the European project, the EU integration project, which is unique again in, in, in the history of, of mankind, which brings a lot of challenges as we know, but which is really worth it at the end of the day. So, you know, as you think about the future and education, what life lessons have been important to you and what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Well, starting with what we've been seeing recently. First, don't sit comfortably on values that we consider are taken for granted. Go out and speak out for them and nurture them actively nurture the values of peace, of the values of democracy, of mutual understanding, of tolerance, of sustainability. Speak out, speak out. You have means that even my generation, and I don't consider myself that old, <laughs> did not have. You have means, the social media, it's incredible how it can be mobilized so easily. So make the best uh, of the means that you have at your reach to, to speak out, to engage, to discuss, to debate. The other side of the social media is sometimes discussions are limited to a tweet of very few letters, right? And it's, it is important to have debates of ideas, not just small uh, tweets. So it's important to promote debates, discussions, exchange of ideas, to travel if you can, if you can afford to make use of the, in Europe, the Erasmus uh, program, which really transformed the EU society, is by getting to know different people, different cultures, that you will become more tolerant, that you will be more understanding of the difference, and that you will be that you will understand that despite the differences, there are more things which unite us than those which make us different. So make use of all these possibilities which exist today to really go out, exchange ideas here and engage. Can, can I ask if you have, can share a memory of the beauty and wonder of the natural world, perhaps from Portugal? Oh, yeah. You know, I've 
been very, very privileged to be born and raised next to the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean. And for me, it was always, as far as I can remember, my real source of energy. It's looking at uh, the ocean, looking at the energy which comes from the ocean, which can be, you know, if you look at the, the, the sea in general and at, at, at an ocean, sometimes it's very calm, sometimes it's very wild. And it so much reflects our possible states of mind and spirit, you know, and it inspires me to see that you can be calm. There are times for tranquility. There are times for action where you need to engage and you need to bring everything uh, with you and overcome all the difficulties. And when I see the strong waves, that's what it makes me think of, that I can face obstacles. But there's also then a moment where I can relax. There are no waves and I can just enjoy the calm, the serenity, the, the beauty. So for me, the sea is a big, big reference in, in nature and the sun, of course. Yes, it's from, from that from which we all come and we, we have everything. We just need to harness this natural uh, energy source. So thank you, Paula Pino and the European Commission's Director General for Energy for helping lead the way to a green and fair future, creating solutions so that everyone has a role to play in meeting our goal of net zero. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet and Future Cities podcast. Thank you very much. Big pleasure. All the best. My name is Cynthia Desmond Villar, and I'm an associate environmental podcaster and interviewer at the One Planet podcast. I'm currently a junior at Georgetown University, majoring in government and justice and peace studies. I'm very interested in environmental sustainability, public policy, and creating social change. During our conversation, Paula Pino shared with us some insight of the European Union's current environmental goals and challenges. In particular, the EU's Green Deal has released a clear goal for Europe to become the first climate neutral continent by 2050. However, this raises certain questions. How can we possibly achieve this in a way that benefits everyone involved? How do we ensure the active collaboration of the 27 member states in the face of differing national interests and arising challenges? While this ambitious goal will be positive in the long term for everyone involved, it will require certain sacrifices made by nation states, but also by individuals. In the short term, therefore, some individuals will be hindered. Therefore, it is essential to ensure quality education and training of new skills to ensure a just transition for everyone involved. Nonetheless, this is complicated due to the ethical complexities tied to climate change. While we are all impacted and we will all continue to be impacted by climate change, there is a spatial and temporal gap between our actions that damage the environment and the negative consequences they produce. In addition, those that create the most environmental damage are not the same individuals that suffer the greatest consequences. As a result, many of us might not feel a moral responsibility to change our behaviors and much less to make significant sacrifices for the greater good of the planet. This is because we do not directly and immediately feel the consequences of climate change. Therefore, in order to ensure the collaboration of all citizens and to have certain individuals willingly make certain significant sacrifices, it is essential to ensure them with the right to re-education and retraining services to ensure their collaboration and also their well-being.
Pina also mentioned the importance of quality education as a foundation for all sustainable development goals and the need for continued research and innovation. In addition, she mentioned how the devastating war in Ukraine has re-emphasized the need to nurture the values promoted by the EU, peace, democracy, tolerance, and mutual understanding. In times of struggle, hopefully we're able to expand the EU, reinforce the values at the core of this international institution, and achieve our goals related to environmental sustainability and also to peace. One Planet podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this podcast was Cynthia Desmer-Bidyar. Digital media coordinator is Phoebe Browse. The music is written and performed by Juan Sánchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.